0: Hello and welcome to this Royal College of Psychiatrists CPD eLearning podcast about Depersonalisation Derealisation Disorder, or DDD for short. I'm Howard Ryland, I'm the Deputy Editor of CPD eLearning and I'm very pleased to be joined today by the authors of a module of DDD um, which is available to check out on the CPD e-learning website. And the authors are Dr Elaine Hunter and Professor Tony David. Welcome. Hello. Hi. So Elaine is a consultant clinical psychologist who has led research and clinical work in DDD since 1999. And Tony is a consultant neuropsychiatrist who is the director of the Institute of Mental Health at University College London. I'm also very fortunate to be joined today by Krishna, who has suffered from DDD and has kindly agreed to share her experiences. Welcome. Hello. Hello. So as we will hear, DDD is common among the general population and even more so in people who are in contact with mental health services. But perhaps surprisingly, it's not well understood, recognized or researched. So to help our listeners to better understand what it is like to experience DDD, I'd like to start by hearing from you, Krishna, about your experiences with the condition.
1: Yeah, of course. So my DDD first came on um, when I I actually started a new job and there was very bright lights in the room and I started feeling quite dizzy and I just didn't understand what that feeling was. Um, That's how it first started, when I first noticed the symptoms. I went to the doctors at one point and they suggested it could be vertigo. So I went down that loophole for, I think, around a year. I saw vertigo specialists, audiology specialists, had my ears tested, um, all sorts really. Um, The GP had no idea about this condition. It was never heard of, I'd never heard of it either. Um, So I was sort of in just going through that process for, yeah, I think around over a year. Um, And then I think I started thinking about it more, trying to research myself. Um, The dizziness sort of turned into more of a fogginess. I felt quite spaced out, um, very detached from reality. Um, And luckily, one of my friends actually forwarded me a BBC article by Elaine on the condition. And that's when the penny dropped. And I thought, hold on, could could this be it? Um, so then I started researching that, looking looking Elaine up actually online, um, and I tried to get a referral through the NHS to see Elaine, but obviously the wait times are so long. I think I waited about two years, and yeah, the experiences I had were mainly that detachment. I found that really difficult. Um, just things were too very 2D, very foggy. It was like I had a veil constantly in front of me. Um, the lights as well were very um, impactful. So in you know shops, I found shopping hard, just going into big shops with bright lights. Um, I found negotiating the underground really difficult, people, I had to really overthink things. Um, and the other thing that really affected me was my cognitive function. So again, I had to really listen when someone was explaining something. It could be the simplest thing, I had to really think about it, process it and then reply. Um, So that I found quite unusual and um, shocking as well, I think. Um, And I think they were the main, yeah, the main symptoms that I I experienced.
0: It it sounds really quite frightening, and it sounds that all of these symptoms were having a big impact on you. Can you just talk a little bit more about what kind of effect it had on your life?
1: Yeah, of course. It was really... um, it was a real struggle like it was just the unknown I didn't know what was going on I'd never really suffered from like mental health issues or you know so I just assumed maybe it must have been something physical initially Um, and yeah so it affected me definitely socially so I was a really social outgoing person I loved seeing my friends and I really became really insular because I felt so uncomfortable in groups um, and big places, so I stopped I stopped seeing friends for a long time, or I could only see one friend at a time. Um, my mood was very low. I think I even had depression really, um, really, really down. It was even so extreme that I would have like suicidal thoughts sometimes, and that was horrible. I knew I'd never do anything, but it was just, yeah, not nice to have those feelings. Um, Work was difficult as well because of my cognitive function. So I think I started a new job at the beginning of it and really struggled to learn new things. And, you know, I was just a bit slower, really. Um, And yeah, I had to sort of adjust my life, really. Like I'd have to, because the underground was so difficult at the beginning, I would have to go to work late to miss the rush and go home early and things like that. So there was a lot of, I had to adapt quite a lot in the beginning to the condition for a good couple of years, actually
0: it sounds like it took quite a while to actually get to the bottom of what was happening for you mm-hmm. could, could you talk a little bit more about your experiences of trying to get help
1: yeah sure so i think initially yeah i went to the gp um they assumed it was vertigo so i think i spent uh, yeah i think around 2 years probably trying to figure that out if it was vertigo um and then i yeah found out about lane And then it took another two years trying to just get help through the NHS. And then, so I think I was suffering with it for probably about four years before I met Elaine, I think. So yeah, it was really tough, really, really hard. And there's just a real lack of information out there. There's nothing. Well, there wasn't when this was, I think, 10 years ago, maybe now. Um, But yeah, when I was first diagnosed, there was absolutely nothing out there.
0: And I wanted to ask about that public awareness that is a real problem, I think, in terms of actually enabling people to to understand this condition and to to recognise it and for people who suffer from it to to get help. What do you think could be done to increase public awareness about DDD?
1: I think just definitely more, definitely online, right? Everyone's online now. Um, Everyone's on Instagram, you know, things like that. I think definitely put it out there more um, really highlight what the symptoms are, because I think that's where the imbalance is. You know, people go to the GP and it's very physical. You don't think it's um, psychological straight away. So definitely that awareness is important. Um, and then how to seek the help, where to go, because, again, that's, you know... Luckily, I've heard of Elaine and, you know, managed to get in touch with Elaine directly. Um, and it's a hard condition to live with. You know, like, it's it's really difficult. Um, day-to-day because it really affects your day-to-day experience like it's now I'm thinking back god it was awful you know you'd wake up and you just want to not be feeling like that you know and not understanding what it is and what to do and is this going to last forever and you know it's all very confusing at the time so um, yeah I think definitely push that push that out online definitely,
0: I think, is a big, big thing. Great. Well, thank you very much for sharing your experiences, Krishnan. It'd be great to come back to you in a bit and and hear about your experiences with treatment and how things have progressed. Um, But it's very helpful to hear about just how debilitating and, and frightening this condition can be to experience. Elaine and Tony, I wanted to turn to you now to understand a little bit more about how DDD can affect different people because, as the name suggests, there are two components, the depersonalisation and the derealisation. Could you talk a bit more about how these two are related and what kind of patterns of symptoms you, you typically see?
2: Yeah, thanks, Howard. Um, so, yes, yeah, so as you say, there's these two component parts, the depersonalisation, so that's the bit that the ref- symptoms that refer to the person so anything that's sort of internal to the person is the depersonalisation part. And then derealisation that technically refers to the outs- outside world. And most people it's, it seem to experience both. And actually the technical splitting of the two sometimes is is a little bit um, too pedantic. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it's better just to think of the two being uh, merged together and hence now the diagnostic uh, labelling is depersonalisation dash derealisation disorder. Um, yes, yeah, uh, we did uh, some of our um, surveys that we've done. It seems to be about 75% of people will actually experience both. About 20% of people experience just the depersonalization, and about 5% of people just the derealisation. Um, and it's very common as a transient symptom mm-hmm. um, uh, under lots of very normal settings, jet lag or fatigue or slightly traumatic experiences. People may experience it for a, a short period of time, seconds, minutes, hours, even a few days. Um, but for some people, that, that condition can, can uh, stay and become a disorder. Um, and that's when it becomes a little bit more um, distressing, uh, causing more impairment, the uh, sort of condition that Krishna's describing there, that you know, things just stayed around for quite a long time. Um, and it seems to be from the hundreds of people that we've seen through Tony and I working together in the, the NHS and the research clinic that was set up back in 1999, that there, there seems to be these sort of four categories that most people will fall under. Uh, the one that probably most clinicians are familiar with are people that have got a history of trauma, sort of psychological trauma, either from childhood or for adulthood. So they may have PTSD or complex PTSD. So that's what people often associate dissociative symptoms with. But actually what we found in the depersonalization clinic was that we were seeing people that didn't fit neatly within that so people that may have had uh, an episode of depression and Krishna was talking about the depression that you may have had at that time um, and so those, those may come on a little bit more gradually people start to notice that as, as well as maybe feeling low in mood that they're feeling this kind of detachment and uh, these, these strange experiences that you were just describing and then there's a two other big categories. So there's people that have uh, taken some substances, some recreational substances, and that's when they first notice the symptoms, um, and those, again, can stay on for a long period of time after the intoxication has worn off. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, often they then think it's to do with the substances, although we're coming well, I've come to the conclusion that often they might have a really adverse reaction to the drugs and often have a very uh, panic attack within the context of the drugs. And obviously, you know, they might have symptoms within the drugs that are also causing those symptoms. But the reason they stay around is because of the ad- the, the fear that's then generated from those adverse um, events. And then the other category are people that have had, the fourth category are people that have had often a, a chronic history of different types of anxiety. So they may have had ch- childhood anxiety, I said someone this week, they had separation anxiety that then went into um, health anxiety, that then went into panic attacks, and that's when their depersonalization started. So those are the kind of four key patterns that I often see in the etiology of what what starts the depersonalization of
0: them. I think that's really helpful to have an understanding of the quite different ways that it can present yeah. and the different kind of comorbidities that can be linked with it. In the module you also touch on the epidemiology yes. of DDD um, and in particular highlighting the discrepancy between that high prevalence rate that you see in surveys versus much lower diagnostic rates and I'm interested to hear from you what do you think is the cause of this gap and what can be done to help close it?
3: Well I think um, it is this spectrum that goes from normal psychology, normal reactions to people with quite serious and enduring mental Disorder. So, just in the same way that uh, everyone knows what it's like to have a low mood or to feel anxious, um, most people, if asked the question, Have you ever felt slightly unreal or detached or as if you were just observing the world and that things were in two dimensions? A lot of people will say, Yes, I have had that. Um, but it's usually very transient, it's explained by what was going on at the time and the the person doesn't really think more about it so but just within as in mood and anxiety if this becomes persistent if it becomes really dominating if it starts to interfere with the rest of your life then we start to think of it this as a as a disorder as a condition in its own right and so that is much that's the kind of tip of the iceberg if you like so it is that condition is much less common
2: Still, as you're saying, Howard, that's, you know, surprising prevalence rates for mm. the disorder itself. So the surveys, we've done two, well, two reviews, one the more recent one being mm. a, a systematic review. And we keep finding this 1% figure for the disorder within communities when you go out and you actually survey it, which is, is equivalent to OCD or schizophrenia. Mm. Um, and that's really at odds with what people think of it being a very rare condition and so it may be that you know there's probably lots of factors at play um obviously one that Krishna was talking about is this you know people not being aware of the symptoms and misdiagnosing missing the symptoms Um, and that's why it's really important to get that awareness within clinicians GPs to start with because they're the first person that, that that people will go to mm. and then obviously <clears throat> in psychiatry that's why we're doing the talk today um, and the module um, within actually the whole gamut of mental health professionals we really want to get people that when someone comes in and they're describing these symptoms that they know what it is um, so that's one of the things that the other thing is actually within the diagnostic criteria as well, there, there is this sort of catch-all bit that I think uh, means that a lot of people kind of label it as something else, because it does say, you know, it's not explainable within the context of another disorder, and because there's so much comorbidity with anxiety and with depression in particular, then people will go, oh, it's part of anxiety or it's part of depression, and I've heard so many people with the condition talking about how frustrating that is mm. because they're like it's not it feels a bit different from this um and it's so sometimes I think it just gets subsumed under other diagnoses um and probably the other main point is that it's such a subjective experience it's a hundred percent you would not know when you're talking to someone that they're experiencing it so if I've got someone that I'm assessing in the and they sit in front of me. I don't know whether they're going to say, "Oh no, actually, I haven't got it today," or I'm experiencing a hundred percent because I cannot tell. Um, and so I think because of that, people it, it kind of gets forgotten about, or people think, "Well, you look fine. You're nodding a lot, Krishna. Mm. Maybe you can talk to that." <laughs> um, you know, you look fine. You know, is it really impacting on you? And so again, it kind of gets a bit swept under the carpet. Yeah, it'd
0: be very interesting to hear from you, Krishna. Yeah. Like your experiences
2: of that.
1: Yeah, I'm smiling and nodding along because, it, yeah, it's very true. I, you, you just seem completely fine, you'd never know, but inside you're, like, in chaos, you know? You're just totally dissociated and, you know, really struggling, but you just, yeah, appear completely fine. And it's just quite interesting, really.
0: And as we've discussed clinicians may not have much experience with this, they may not have much confidence. It would be very interesting to hear from you Krishna about what you would find helpful from a a clinician if you were to contact them in in the first instance and also from you Elaine and Tony about what advice you might have as well. Krishna I don't know if you have thoughts about that, what would be helpful from a, a clinician if you were to Approach them for the first time about these concerned
1: yeah I think obviously definitely just them having knowledge about it that's what's completely missing going to the GP um, and again going down that physiological route automatically you know so it's definitely giving them that knowledge and just understanding it that was what was really difficult for me as well it's no one understood no one knew and when I found out about Lane it was Oh my god, it's the most amazing feeling. Because like, oh my god, somebody knows what this is, they understand it. Um and yeah, for me that was that was very important.
0: And Elaine and Tony, what would you advise?
3: Well, just to pick up on that, I think um a lot of people it first of all the the the, the symptoms are, can be quite hard to describe. Mm. Um, and people struggle with the language. Uh, of how best to describe it and certain metaphors come up again and again like my head's full of cotton wool like I'm watching on a uh, life on a on a screen for example and things like vertigo or other physical symptoms get sort of brought into it and it can be quite confusing um but we hear so often that people say <laughs> Once I, I knew there was a name for this thing, depersonalization, derealization, once I realized that I wasn't going mad, yes, my mental health w- had a condition, but it, it didn't mean I was losing touch with reality completely. It didn't mean that my brain was, uh, w- was uh, degenerating. That in itself can be an incredibly important step so knowing that you're not alone, there is a there is a name for this condition. Um, there are people who are interested in it and trying to figure out uh, treatments. That can be a very important and, and reassuring first step.
0: Great.
2: Yeah, I totally agree actually. You know, someone just can say, yes, we know about this, this is what it is, kind of normalising of those symptoms and also helping that person understand why that's happened in their particular context. Um, really, really helpful. Um, and then, and that may be enough, actually, if that's done early enough, that that could stop it from, you know, the the anxiety and the worry that kind of fuels it. Um, uh, yeah, so that definitely an important first step. But then also then, you know, we've actually written a a paper for the British British Medical Journal that kind of helps to kind of show some of the steps along that way Mm -hmm. that you might might just do some watchful waiting at the beginning and check in a bit later on and see what happens. If there's other conditions that might be contributing to it, that you could treat those. But for some people, they might need a little bit of specialist help with the depersonalisation symptoms themselves. And so we're we're hoping to start to get those skills a bit more, um, the knowledge and skills a bit more
0: disseminated within clinicians. That's really helpful. You know, we've talked about the onset of symptoms and different ways that DDD can manifest itself, but it's also important to stress that um, people do recover from DDD. And what do those pathways to recovery look like?
2: Well, speaking more from a psychological perspective and particularly um, what I was tasked to do when I first started working in this condition was not just a psychological perspective but also seeing from it, whether we could look at it from a CBT perspective um, that that seems to work well. We can provide through CBT we can provide a narrative as to what's maybe led to the symptoms and also what's Uh, contributing to those symptoms staying around. So in terms of thoughts about the symptoms, the cognitions um, and behaviours that might be associated, like Krishna was saying, you know, that Mm -hmm. sort of social withdrawal, um, uh, physical and emotional aspects. So mapping that out with somebody in a a CBT formulation and sharing that and then looking at alternatives at each of those uh, points. And so that's really the CBT model Mm. that is in some ways very similar to other CBT models, but it's got depersonalization symptoms at its heart. And so we're really looking at what's contributing to the depersonalization, what's led to it, and also helping people to understand that although it's incredibly unpleasant, uh, can interfere with their lives, it's not necessarily um, harmful. In fact, you can sort of conceptualise that as a, an amazing mechanism that the brain can, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the mind can just detach yourself a bit from that, that situation that feels overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So people often talk about, you know, things feel overwhelming, they don't, you know, escape, inescapable, and somehow they, they're kind of detaching from it. And people understanding that, I often use a metaphor of a kind of trip switch in a fuse box And, you know, things, switches might get switched off, the cognitive, the physical, uh, the emotional. um, But those are just temporarily, and once things can be, the overwhelm can be reduced down and we start to dismantle what's keeping it going, those things can come back online again.
0: Mm. Krishna, it would be very interesting to hear from you about your experiences with treatment and how... The condition has has progressed for you
1: Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um so cbt for me was absolutely key it really made me aware of the condition but not just that it was why it came about like elaine just touched on i spent so long hating it and being so mad at it Um, and then it was actually, it's come into my life for a reason. And it got triggered, I think, because I was just not in a good place. I think generally in my life, nothing major was going on. There's no trauma. Um, but I was just in a bad relationship basically that I was just stuck in and nothing. I just couldn't get out of it. And I think my mind and my body was telling me, you know, you need to do something now. Um, and then I realized, you know, some people have, you know, some people might have OCD. Some people might have, um, PTSD, you know, it's different forms, and this was my form, I guess. Um, And so, yeah, we did a lot of work through the CBT. It also helped me with other things, like I was drinking quite heavily as well, which I think had an impact on my symptoms too, especially the next day. It made my mind even foggier. So I did a lot of work with cutting down my drinking, um, which really helped um, understanding my thought process as well. So one thing that really helped was the thought record um, thought process, I think, was it called um, about putting sort of a thought on trials instead of really going into it and overly worrying about it and causing this anxiety. It was put it on trial and then you can analyse. Actually, it's okay. It's not, you know, it's not a disaster. Um, and then also just being more aware of my senses as well. So I'm very a uh, visual person. So ways to sort of if I'm feeling really. Um, symptomatic than either really visualising something or smelling something which really helps so I actually bought this oil which I put on my skin and I just inhale it to try and get back to that reality um, things like that were really helpful um, and yeah and I think just not focusing on it as well like I had periods where um, yeah I'd be on holiday and I symptoms would be so bad and I didn't understand why because I was on holiday and it was because I was just constantly thinking about it mm-hmm um and so now where I am now is recovery has been incredible I think it's important to say that I still suffer from it it hasn't completely gone but that's okay because I know how to manage it now I know what it is I don't find it scary anymore um and yeah just try not to to focus on it really so much I guess it's
0: really great to hear that you have actually had benefit from treatment and actually now the condition is is much more manageable and and hopefully for anyone listening who's experiencing these symptoms but perhaps hasn't had the opportunity to have treatment it's good to know that there are things that that do work and also for any clinicians to know that actually this is a a, a treatable condition and that actually people's lives can be can be improved by adequate treatment.
1: Yeah definitely I mean because when you first get it it's as I said it's really scary it's really isolating Um, you don't know where to go for help. And then when you finally find it, it's such a relief. And I think touching on what we were saying earlier as well, is as soon as I got that diagnosis, again, it was a huge relief. Like, oh, my God, there's a name to it. I know what it is. Now I can work to recovery, you know? So that was was very, very important as well.
0: Mm. And it's interesting... Going back to what you were saying, Elaine, about um, this idea that actually potentially these symptoms could play a protective role as a, mm-hmm. as a defense a, against stresses. Yeah, feeling overwhelmed. Feeling is overwhelmed. Often a word, word that people... And so it's perhaps unsurprising that, that talking therapies and in particular CBT perhaps form the, the mainstay of current treatment yes. and also have the best evidence base. But I understand from the module that there are also other treatments, pharmacological treatments um, and other physical treatments, uh, which are showing some promise. And Tony, I know that you've worked um, in this field, and it would be very interesting to hear from you about what, what the options are and what we know about
3: them sure. so far. So um, depersonalisation, derealisation has been recognized by psychiatrists for many, many years, um, even though it was thought to be rather rare. Um, So lots of different treatments, medications have been tried and um, to say straight away, nothing has emerged as being all that effective. Uh, And so the search is still on for specific treatments. Should say though, that as we've been saying, depersonalization derealization it often emerges from um, anxiety and and it's well known that people can have panic attacks which um, inevitably and quite reliably lead on to DDD it becomes part of the panic attack and that idea that you know a fuses has gone uh, and the person suddenly become detached um, makes a lot of sense in that context. So if you can try and alleviate the panic or the anxiety, then you would hope that that's going to reduce the likelihood of depersonalization, derealization coming on. So so treatments for anxiety are often helpful for treatments for depersonalization. And the same is true of mood. So. A lot of people with ddd will also describe how their mood is low how it's um hard for them to feel pleasure in things that they normally felt pleasure in what makes it slightly different is that they will often say that i don't feel particularly sad either it's more of a numbness Mm -hmm. an emotional numbing which is the sort of key difference but nevertheless um I think where low mood is, is a feature, it is well worth treating that quite vigorously with antidepressant medications, with, with specific psychological treatments and so on. And that will often help the DDD as well. On the other hand, there'll be people who will say, yes, I feel much my depression is much better now, but I've still got this lingering uh, DDD, and that's the, the more difficult one to treat. Um, we've sort of experimented with different combinations of medication. I should say that none of them um, is licensed. None of them has sort of the full backing of large scale randomized trials. Uh, We're hoping uh, to be able to do those, but some indications are that um, a drug called Lamotrigine, which is used to treat um, bipolar disorder as well as epilepsy and other conditions. Uh, so, psychiatrists are used to using Lamotrigine, uh, and we have found that in combination with an SSRI, the typical antidepressant treatment, uh, that can have an added benefit for depersonalization symptoms. Again, we, we, we found that helpful in a cohort of patients, but this wasn't a randomized trial. so. Got to be cautious, and you know, there are theoretical reasons why lamotrigine might be effective, it, it, it blocks the depersonalization symptoms that drugs like uh, ketamine induce. So, there's a sort of pharmacological background there that suggests why it might be effective. Um, so, th- th- the other thing is that sometimes. Uh, people talk about feeling detached from reality and it seems like perhaps it might be the beginning of a psychotic disorder um, and the, the, the persons put on some antipsychotic medication. Now obviously that's a, it's a relatively uncommon circumstance and it requires real expert uh, intervention from psychiatrists and psychologists um, but where it's clear that, well, it's not the beginning of a, a psychotic disorder, enough time has elapsed, the person doesn't have the other symptoms. Sometimes um, the, the, the individual finds themselves on antipsychotic medication, even low dose, sort of long term. And we're pretty sure that that makes DDD worse. Mm-hmm. So where it's not needed, um, make sure that the person isn't on uh, medication that's actually being unhelpful. So that's an important indicator.
0: That's, that's a very important point and I think very helpful for any clinicians who are actually thinking about how to best manage this and what the role of psychopharmacology can be alongside yeah. um, psychological therapies as well. And Elaine and Tony, you, you talk about some of the limitations on the existing evidence base in the module, but I understand that there are some... Promising new avenues of inquiry. Um, are you able to give us a bit of an update on the current and also future directions for research in this topic, please?
2: Well, based on the um, the clinical audits that we've done, so that was at the, the Maudsley Hospital um, and the Institute of Psychiatry, where Tony and I did a lot of our clinical and academic work. We did a, a, a an an early clinical audit which is for the um evidence of CBT and then we've actually got uh, another uh, manuscript that's being re- under review at the moment and on the basis of that emerging uh, uh, ev- evidence base um although it's not randomized we've actually been able to secure a uh, from the N- NIHR um, some funding to run a feasibility, randomised control trial, um, and what's really good about that is that we we're we're trying to do it within uh, routine NHS clinical services. So a lot of that was, that evidence was coming from a specialist service, a tertiary service within the NHS where people were seen. Um, but by experts and specialists that we're only doing that, and what we're doing now is training NHS clinicians uh, so that's sort of CBT therapists in primary and secondary care, and some some specialist services as well where appropriate um, to then be able to deliver this within within with clients that they're actually seeing in their own in their own services on their own waiting lists, so we're in the process of doing that now. Um, And so, yeah, that would obviously take a little while to to sort of disseminate. And that's just to look at the feasibility of actually running a a larger scale trial Mm -hmm. and get those parameters um, and seeing whether that might be the, that would be the next step. And then again, if there was a larger scale trial and that seemed to be showing more efficacy, um, then that's the sort of thing that would be starting to roll out uh, in a, across the board a bit more in NHS services. So there is a kind of, you know, a slow and steady accumulation of evidence Mm -hmm. that we've been building over the 20 odd years that we've been working in this area, both in these small studies and the epidemiology and et cetera, et cetera. And we're just sort of slowly trying to build that evidence base.
3: And another thing sort of right at the cutting edge is um, neuromodulation. Or, or or TMS transcranial magnetic stimulation. So again, we've done some very early work that shows that um, if you use TMS to m- modulate parts of the brain that are involved with emotional regulation. Uh, so the idea is that in DDD, there's too much emotional regulation. Emotions are being sort of hampered and, and suppressed to some extent even when they would be um, they'd give a person a sense that they're they're alive and uh, well. Uh, it's gone too far and so we can kind of modulate that uh, uh, with TMS and uh, to a particular part of the, of the frontal cortex. So we've done that just as a kind of one-off treatment and it does seem to be quite effective, but again, we would love to get some more funding to do a proper randomized trial. Well,
0: that's really exciting to hear about those new developments and that there is investment of funding in this area which has previously been so neglected and under-resourced. Krishnan, I wanted to finish by turning to you again and asking you if you had any thoughts about how you'd like things to, to change in the future. for people who experience DDD
1: yeah I think I mean it's great the work that Elaine and Tony are doing you know it's time that this is you know people are more aware definitely GPs clinicians um definitely yeah definitely awareness hugely um I think just access as well to the care you know because it took me four years so just being able to access it more easily uh quickly um very important too um i think they're yeah i think they're the main main two things definitely great
2: just to say to that there is there is a a specialist uh, service within the NHS but there is it is one specialist mm-hmm. services within the NHS um, it's based at Maudsley um, so people do get referred there but as Christian was saying the waiting times can be unacceptable mm. um, and so that's why we want to you know start to get more specialist centres and people that are skilled I'm sure people are doing lots of skilled work um, and there is Literature and information out there on how to provide it, certainly on the CBT with, with written uh, both academic papers. There's a self-help book that a lot of clinicians go to and just get some ideas about some of the techniques that can be used. Uh, yeah. But there's a bit of a bottleneck. Um, and, you know, that's because it's been seen as this kind of rare condition. Do we need to invest money and and services and something that's so rare. And so actually, I think that is starting to change. Um, And the awareness that the information on the internet has definitely changed over that period of time. Um, And also just to say that we've been involved in setting up a charity specifically for depersonalisation, derealisation disorder, so it doesn't get subsumed under other mental health charities. And that's very helpful for people. So it's a place that they can come to a sort of community of people that have had the experiences. It's called Unreal, Mm -hmm. Um, and so people can go to there. They also run peer support uh, sessions. So, you know, there are starting to, to have more
0: things that people can access. But definitely a lot more to do on that. Great. So I think that's a good point to finish on, on a note of hope, that things are slowly progressing to better understanding and, and some better services for people who do suffer from DDD. Um, and you know, hopefully that will continue and that we will see more research, and more services to, to support people who suffer from this condition. So I'd like to thank all of my speakers today, Krishna, Tony and Elaine for joining me. Um, and again, invite you to have a look at the module online. So thank you for listening to this CPD e-learning podcast. And for the latest updates, please follow us on Twitter at rcpsych underscore e And to listen to more podcasts from the CPD e-learning portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud,
3: search for us online so thank you for listening and thank you to my speakers thank you thank Thank you. you